Hello, and welcome to Metastation for our very first episode recapping the new HBO series, His Dark Materials. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And uh, for those of you who may be new to our podcast, welcome. Uh, we are, uh, Aaron and I have been best friends for um, over 20 years now. I think, I like think, that. I think almost like 20, almost 20 years, almost 20 years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we started this podcast, uh, I think maybe three or four years ago, and we recap and discuss and have conversations about um, all kinds of television shows, usually in the sort of speculative fiction realm that we enjoy. Um, and we're going to be covering the whole first season and hopefully future seasons, if the show continues, of uh, His Dark Materials, which is adapted from the Philip Pullman books. And we wanted to start off by just talking a little bit about like who we are, our sort of relationship history with understanding of the books and kind of give you a little bit of a snapshot of how the podcast is going to sort of proceed going forward. Uh, we did sort of agree before we started recording, having both read the books, we're going to try not to get too like super aggressively spoilery, but I think this will be probably of the most interest people who have read the books. Um, we'll probably talk a lot about ways that the show and the book kind of compare and contrast, things like that. So just be forewarned if you're like, if you don't want like a single spoiler about anything that happens beyond the current episode, <laughs> this might not be the podcast for yeah. you. <laughs> we probably will accidentally spoil you, you know, yeah. at some point. So <laughs> we will forget this rule by like episode four. <laughs> we will forget this rule in like 20 minutes. Let's be, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and and we've both read the books um uh it's sort of like different different times in our lives i read them all over a christmas break i think um a couple years ago i think it was two years ago and i just i'm i'm rereading golden compass right now i was i was trying to finish it before the show started but i'm a professor a college professor it's like you know the middle of my semester so uh <laughs> other reading demands have gotten in the way but it is like relatively fresh for me so um you know so uh so we'll be talking a little bit about sort of like some of the changes that the the show has made to the characters or to the plot and i do want to say like this is a you know at least as far as i'm concerned i think claire we we tend to think similarly about these things as far as sort of like talking about comparisons between the book and the show um my sort of philosophy of of adaptation like film or, or tv or tele or, or movie adaptations of novels which is actually something i i've taught classes on is that like i'm i'm not like a person who thinks that the measure of an adaptation should be its faithfulness to the source text so this isn't going to be a, a podcast where we're going to be like well they changed this so you know that's not really you know like that's not the kind of comparisons that we're interested in i prefer to think or i think it's like more more generative and more interesting to think about uh adaptations as being sort of forms of inter of, of creative interpretation in themselves. You know, so the kinds of comparisons that we're interested in are like, you know, so like if they 
there are certain changes from if you're if you're moving from one genre to another, from a novel to film. There are certain things that novels can do that films can't do, and vice versa. So sometimes those things drive the changes, and sometimes there are interesting ways that that adaptations will sort of like try to capture things like point of view or voice from a novel, you know, cinematically. But also just thinking about like. You know, like this is this is the TV shows, the creative vision of like not just Philip Pullman, but also the screenwriters and the directors and the actors and like all the other sort of people involved in this. And they're sort of producing something that um, that brings their voices and ideas and thoughts and sort of interpretations of characters and situations to it. So that kind of comparison, you know, I think is really interesting is looking at the way that looking at adaptation like, yeah, as a form of kind of like creative reinterpretation. Yeah, and and they're because they're just such like they're such different ways to tell a story. You know, like one of the I I read a bunch of like reviews of the first episode, and one of the things that that I I always like I had not clocked because I had not read the books in a really long time. But that very like the very first thing that we see of him bringing Lyra you know through the water to bring her to the college is taken from a different book. Yeah, from um the Book of Dust, which is one of the. F- Pullman is writing the the prequel, or well, that's the prequel, and then there's two, the other two books in the this that trilogy I think are sequels. But yeah, that scene, I like when that came up, I was like, oh, oh, that's that's Book of Dust, like that's not in Golden Compass. It adds in something to the visual storytelling, you know, yeah. sort of giving us that that kind of flashback, and you know, and I think it also. It sets up, I think, one piece of the adaptation that I that I think works really beautifully in translating it to screen is that in the book, there are so few times where we're in a room that Lyra is not in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or that we know things that Lyra does not know. And so adding in, you know, a really important moment that happens when Lyra is a baby and has no formative memories of it. And then sort of sprinkled throughout, there's a couple other sort of smaller scenes of, you know, conversations that that do a lot of plot work where she's not there. And that's something that like in a book that's from her point of view, you can't have that. And this show can sort of expand that world a little bit. But I think another interesting thing about this and that, you know, from the from the sort of also, because yeah, like some of it is about like constraints of of um, form, but I think another sort of piece of that of including that scene with Azrael delivering her as a baby um, is that I think that kind of sets up what to me is one of the biggest alterations from the book in this adaptation, in this at least in this first episode, is that if not reinterpretation of Azrael's character, a completely different framing of Azrael's character, because in the book. Lyra is terrified of Azrael. Like he is this this very sort of like very stern, serious, rather frightening figure. You know that moment when he grabs his arm and it he he twists it. She's fascinated by him, but there is much much more warmth in Azrael's character in the show towards Lyra than there is in the book. Like in the book, and part of this is a function of Lyra's being in Lyra's point of like uh point of view with Azrael. We sort of know that she's like really afraid of him, but but there is none of that sense really in the book that he truly deep down, like that he loves her, you know, that he really does care about her. Um and I think I think that scene of him delivering her in during the flood, 
does a tremendous amount of character work for Asriel so that when we see him come back later and he is kind of like short and stern with, you know, with um, Lyra, you sort of see it through the lens of already knowing that this is a man who's who like obviously loves this little girl a great deal on some level because he's put himself through this sort of um, risk to save her. And then also, you know, like the, adding to that, that, that scene where he carries her to bed, which also doesn't happen in the novel. Mm-hmm. That is a fundamental change to his character on some level, which I find interesting. I feel like I'm sort of jumping the gun with the Asriel there. We can return to that. That's a really good example of sort of the ways in which like, and we talked about this a little bit when we, um, when we did like good omens too, just sort of the, like the way that the, the book of the thing and the television adaptation of the thing that two different Lord Asriels can exist in two different mediums side by yeah. side, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that on screen, you know, you have like, you have the actor and the director and all these writers sort of bring in their own, you know, kind of stuff to it. And, you know, James McAvoy, ha- like he, I think he's really good at sort of subtle layers of warmth beneath the kind of curmudgeonly, <laughs> you know, like, um, like there's so much going on, you know. Yeah, he's particularly good at that as an actor, I think, is is sort of like conveying layers, like depth of emotion behind a sort of like particular mask you know what i mean like that is a kind of like that's and and so i mean like this is why adaptation is really cool and why this is also why i kind of think like fidelity criticism which is what you know like the sort of term for like talking about like well it's like this is the this is the same and that isn't the same i think it's so reductive is because like you know like because i don't know it's like the like the the work that these artists do, you know, that that James McAvoy as an actor does, he brings something into that role that that is not necessarily on the page, that isn't necessarily, you know, in the novel. Like actors also shape the material that they're given, right? You know, so like so that's one really interesting way where like this particular and and like obviously it's not just down to James McAvoy because it does have to do with the way that the script frames the character but i think it is really interesting that that sort of choice of of amplifying or sort of uh making textual uh sort of like warmth and care on some level that Azrael has for Lyra that is not textual in the novel um you know i think it it does sort of like it shifts the story a little bit. You know what I mean? Like it shifts the story of Lyra a little bit because, because now in the, in the show, there's a tension between her sense of being an orphan and of sort of independence and of her sort of like freedom to just kind of like up and leave. You know what I mean? And, and knowing Knowing kind of for a fact that these are, there are these people who sort of really desperately care about her. Yeah. That's way more textual, I think, in the, in the show. This sort of like sense of like a much more palpable sense in which Lyra herself is precious to somebody. Um, rather than just important for a destiny, you know, like I think that's way more sort of palpable in the show than it is in the book. Um, and I, and I like that. It comes out in the professors so much too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's like a little bit like this, the scene where the two professors are talking about her and about like sort of like murder, you know, like, well, we didn't successfully murder Azrael, <laughs> whatever. Like that's in the book too. But again, but I think there's a sort of like in the book, there's like more emotional distance between Lyra and the professors. Than there is in the show, and part of that is is again point of view because the the book 
those chapters, you know, are are mostly in Lyra's point of view, and she doesn't really feel, you know, that sort of like warmth from them. Right. But yeah, so I don't know. There's a, there's more of a feeling of sort of the importance of this child as a child that people love. So I, I mean, I don't I don't really know what to do with that yet, but it's interesting. I think one of the things that 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 I like about that sort of that point of view shift is like. You know, is that it feels, it feels sort of developmentally appropriate for the age that Lyra's at, that when we're inside her head in the book, it's like, you know, like she, yeah, that she feels sort of like untethered and she doesn't really feel, you know, like when you're like, when you're a kid that age, like your relationships with adults kind of are fundamentally one-sided and imbalanced in some way you know like they Mm -hmm. take care of her but she doesn't feel like an emotional bond with them you know the headmaster to her is a person who's always kind of like like telling her what not to do you know and the professor (laughs) is like sit here and learn your lessons and she's like i want to go slide around on the roof you know so like it's which is for for being a kid who's 11 like thinking of these adults as people who primarily exist to like be a buzzkill to her yeah, and then Azrael yeah, yeah. as this person who's very like unpredictable and intimidating and distant even when he's there I think one of the things that the books from what I remember you know do really nicely is like you know when you're telling a story where the protagonist is a child you can only ever tell as much as the child knows and and so one of the things that I think is really um, it's really lovely in this sort of page to screen transition is that like, you know, if you sort of look at the book and the show in some way as kind of being in conversation with each other, there's sort of a story, you can kind of read between those lines, a story about the ways in which kids often can't see what love from adults looks like, mm, you know, like, yeah. like mm-hmm. kids, kids don't know always that they need rules for example that they mm-hmm. need structure that they need discipline because if you don't give them that then they grow up sort of feeling like you know then they do feel kind of untethered you know like the telling lyra like sit down and do your homework you know like eat your vegetables don't touch the hot stove you know like <laughs> like when you're a kid those things can come across to you like mean or like they're depriving you of something or, you know, like adults are always saying no or they just want to like keep you like hemmed in or whatever, you know. So that's a realistic way for an 11-year-old girl to sort of filter all the interactions she has with the adults yeah, yeah. In her life. And and what the show does by taking us out of being inside her head is pulls back and shows us that, like, you know, the same professor who she who's like, oh, my God, did you fucking lock me out of my classroom? <laughs> so you can go climb out the window, you little asshole. And then, like, you know, and then, like, three scenes later... He's like sitting in front of the fireplace being like, we cannot let anything happen to this child, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, like what, what love looks like to a kid versus what to us as adult viewers watching these adults have a conversation. It's just, it's a really like, it was such an interesting, there were so many layers to that of like, what is visible to a child and what are the kinds of things that you sort of only realize later when you're an adult about like, oh, all along, you know, my parents or my teachers or my whatever, you know, or my 
crazy Arctic explorer uncle, you know, like were <laughs> like all along were in fact demonstrating in their own way that they cared about me very deeply. And it's just like when you're 11, you know, and you're just like, if you really love me, you let me eat all of my trick or treat candy in one night. <laughs> and the fact that, and the fact that you're making me pace it out over the next three weeks is fascism. You know, like when you're right. a kid, like that's what, that's what yeah. it feels like. Instead of your parents being like, no, it's because you will vomit all over everything right. if you do that. Yeah, it's and then like feel terrible. There are things that we know that you don't know. Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. Yeah, or or like Azrael saying, Azrael saying, like, no, you have to stay here. You can't come with me. From her perspective, it's like you know he's saying like no he's saying like no i don't want you you know he's like you know he's like being a buzzkill like she wants to go have fun she wants to explore and he's saying like no you don't get to do that and he's saying like i don't want you with me and what she can't understand is like how truly extremely dangerous it is and that you know this is coming from a place of place of like fear and concern and desire to protect her from anything that could hurt her but she just does not have enough like she cannot possibly conceive of that you know so like so yeah you know the sort of like these like really natural and and kind of normal but very sad miscommunications that happen between children and grown-ups <laughs> so it's a nice change i think that we get to see that you know like yeah. you could you could be really judgmental and critical of the headmaster and the college you know being so scared of the controversy of like like of, of not really wanting to sort of publicly get into it about this sort of really paradigm shattering new scientific discovery and it's and it comes off as cowardly until you hear him explaining later that like keeping our heads down and keeping the magisterium out of this college is for Lyra, you know, is mm -hmm. to keep Lyra off their radar and keep Lyra safe. Like there are reasons for it beyond just moral cowardice, you know, and, and there's, there's sort of a lens of looking at everyone's choices, particularly in this first episode, you know, with Azrael and everybody at the school in terms of the things that they are kind of quietly doing to protect this kid that she has no idea are happening and other even other adults don't necessarily know are happening and and that have sort of been ticking away in the background and then through this sort of you know confluence of circumstances now it's like okay well we've maxed out our ability to keep her safe here. And now we have to kind of figure out a way to keep her safe somewhere else. And the master being, you know, interestingly kind of ambivalent about like, I think maybe sending you with Mrs. Coulter is the best bet. I'm not totally sure, <laughs> but I know that you can't stay here, you know? So I think it is, it is interesting just the sort of the way that it humanizes that kind of chosen one prophecy child's thing by showing us all of the ways in which you know realizing that like that being the special chosen one means not just that she's like special but also that she's like in active danger and everybody has to make a bunch of choices all the time to sort of figure out you know so like Azrael doesn't come visit all the time because every time he comes, you know, it's like he's like drawing attention. Like, how can we create a life for this kid that's as close as possible to sort of being like a normal kid? And how can the college kind of keep their nose out of dangerous controversy, as the master said it, which is <laughs> which I loved. It's like, oh, British pronunciation. 
But uh, but yeah, but that that like the way things look on the surface from the outside, and the way they look when you sort of peel back that layer and you realize that the adults, the everybody who kind of knows who Lyra is and and what or has some sense of kind of where she's come from and what the future has in store for her are constantly making choices that are shaped around how to keep her safe and protect her. And that, you know, the the really painful tension in that scene between her and Azrael as he's taking off when he says, I don't have time for you right now. Like you, you do feel, I think that that costs him, you know, like that he has, like he is in the middle of something that, that genuinely is more important, like not just more important than Lyra, but more important in his opinion than any one other individual person in the world. It's like, it's brutal, but it's also true. And so you understand from his point of view, why he's like, I can't, I can't also be worrying about keeping a kid safe in this incredibly dangerous part of the world while I have this work to do, which is also super dangerous, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so you hear what he's trying to say. And that, again, if you peel back the layer, it's also like the work that he's doing is also in aid of like trying to make a better world for Lyra and trying to protect Lyra and trying to uncover these truths that the world needs to know. You know, like, so there is, like, she's sort of embedded in all of these things, but she doesn't know it. You can also see why it makes perfect sense from her point of view, watching him get on that airship and fly away from her after having basically told her, I don't have time for you, like, how it lands to her and what's happening for him as he says it are two totally different conversations, you know, which, again, is, like... It makes sense because she's 11, you know? So mm-hmm. the moments like that, I thought, were just really, like, Lyra versus adults is just really mm-hmm. beautifully realized kind of already in this in this pilot. Yeah. We're sort of here already, but I think let, let's start with talking about Lyra and who Lyra is before we sort of get into the rest of it. Um, just sort of, like, what we, what we learn about who she is as a person from this first episode, which really felt like, like, as a pilot... This episode does a lot of work, really efficiently, I thought. Like, world building, character building, relationship setup, um, without any of it really feeling sort of forced in. But she feels like, I mean, for the minute you meet her, she's a very three-dimensional character already, I felt like. Yeah, yeah. And Lyra's such a, an, an interesting character, I think, just, you know, always. Because, like, she is a little bit, she's kind of a difficult character in some ways. She's headstrong and um and she's manipulative and uh you know and, and I think it's like a little bit muted in the show versus the book, which is again partly just about sort of like space and time. You know what I mean? Like you just have to sort of compress. But I mean I think you even see like that opening scene where she and Roger are running around and she like runs into the crypt and Roger says, you like, you know I hate it down here. And she just like so that sort of like headlong like she wants to go there. She's gonna run there. You know, like Roger's gonna follow her. Like he can just deal. You know, that way that she sort of like blows past those concerns. And the same thing with you know like with Pantalemon always like, you know, like Pantalemon kind of saying like don't do that. You know, like, this is a bad idea. Like, shouldn't be doing that. And she just kind of is like, yeah, 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 whatever. But, but like, is she so just like, she is like, they do a good job of just like, she is such a vivid character, you know, that sort of like, absolute determination and curiosity, you know, she's like, she's so driven by curiosity. She just wants to know, um, you know, she wants to see everything. Um, 
And she's so, like, dauntless. <laughs> like, when I was 11, I would not have crawled into an open casket and, like, played around oh with, like, my the God, bones no. inside. Like, I would have been, like, so freaked out. <laughs> but, like, she just, like, doesn't, just, like, does not care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, whatever. There's bones. It's fine. <laughs> I And I just really appreciate that she's not an angelically perfect chosen one child, you know? Like, if you look at, like, Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or even, like, Harry Potter, kind of, it's like, we're almost always meant to be on, like, on, like, on the child protagonist side, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and a lot of times that sort of leads to them being these kind of either, like, implausibly perfect and adorable and innocent, you know, or, like, all of the sort of things that go wrong are somebody else's fault so that the kid kind of stays, you know, with like a halo around them. And the fact that Lyra is like, sometimes just like a real butthead. Yeah. Like I, I <laughs> yeah. love that, you know, like, cause, yeah. she, cause she feels like a real kid. And I think that part of what makes like when the, when the scary things happen, they're extra scary. And, and the, you know, the action, stuff feels like more exciting because it feels like you're watching a really relatable it's like a, like a tiny Bruce Willis in Die Hard like a regular person <laughs> in these insane circumstances like how would you react you know like she feels like a normal human kid and so i love that the neither the book nor the show make her unnaturally perfect or, you know, like a lot of times the things in the book that go wrong or the things that move the plot along are like, you know, like Lyra makes a mistake, you know, like Lyra trusts the wrong person or Lyra forgets something or Lyra lets something slip that she wasn't supposed to or makes a impulsive judgment or something like that. And to both like the good and the bad things that happen are sort of shaped by her personality, which is really complicated. And I think, um, and the, the actress, um, who plays her, who's just, I mean, wonderful, so expressive and looks very much like how I sort of picked kind of like scrappy, you know, like a little bit rumpled all the time, (laughs) hair never really brushed. You're like, yes, this this checks out. This feels correct. It feels like she's just very, um, like very thoroughly realized, I think, from the minute we first met meet her. And I but I also think that you get that sort of sense of it's pretty, I think economic and how they kind of get it across like they don't really lean on it too hard but that sort of sense of like yearning for adventure that she has you know like the little the shadow puppet of the bird that she's doing with her hands and like the fact that she keeps lord asriel's postcards from the north up on her wall you know like the that sort of sense inside of her of this like desire to like you know go off and like be an explorer and have all these adventures and that she's trying the best that she can to sort of create an adventurous life for herself in this pretty sleepy town in this sort of like big, boring college where from her point of view, nothing interesting ever happens. So she has to kind of like make her own adventures by like sliding around on the rooftops, you know, (laughs) like it checks out. And then it, and then it totally makes sense why she'd be totally vulnerable the second somebody like Mrs. Coulter walks into the room. Yeah, and sort of looks at her and says, like, oh, you're interesting. You know, like, you are, mm-hmm. I'm not interested, mm-hmm. but you're interesting. Like, and, oh, you want to go see these things that I've seen. Yeah, I'm going to give you my undivided attention. Yeah, and he can sort of sense, like, that, that that is, like, sense what it is that Lyra wants most of all, which is to kind of, like, get out into the world and have these adventures and and sort of see the world. Um, 
you know, so, I mean, like, obviously, like, that's Mrs. Coulter. Like, she just finds, she finds your weakness and mm-hmm. ruthlessly exploits it. <laughs> yep. But, but, you know, but I think she, like, is, you know, and again, and like, in this, in this adaptation, like, even knowing, even knowing, you know, like, who Mrs. Coulter's going to turn out to be, like, what kind of person that she actually is. Yeah. She is so smooth and um convincing and charming you know and and the sort of like freshness of Azriel's rejection and the kind of like the how like how visceral that longing for adventure Lyra has is you know it really you like it the you can see that that sort of hunger in her being fed by Mrs. Coulter so it feels like it really does, like, even for the viewer, sort of feel like like Mrs. Coulter was dropped from heaven, you know, with this, like, gift for Lyra. Exactly. To get yeah. Out, you know, like, so even even mm-hmm. knowing where this is going, I'm sort of like, oh, yes, of course, go off with Mrs. Coulter. Like, oh, that'll be great. Oh, wait, no. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I had the same experience. I was like, like, I was watching it with two, with like, two brains. One being like, okay, this is like, like, I, you know. We're about to get into the part of the story where, like, things get really, like, exciting yeah. and terrible because Mrs. Yeah. Coulter is the worst, you know. And <laughs> um, and also that, like, like the, there's a part of you that's like, maybe this time it'll work out, you know. Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> maybe this because she's culture so- will be different. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I, these were, so the, I, I rewatched a bunch of these scenes. Cause like I, it's so like I, the movie, the 2007 movie, which, which was, which was not good for some reasons, which aren't their fault because this just is not a book you can adapt into two hours. Yeah. Um, no, no. So, so some of it is just, like, it was just, <laughs> it was never going to work. Um, but, but what I remember, like the only thing that I remember enjoying really about that adaptation was that Nicole Kidman looked at like her, her sort of, um, she was playing the character the way that she sort of looked in my head, you know, like, like I was like when I remember when I read the books and I was picturing sort of like, like, like a Hitchcock blonde, you know, Mm -hmm, like, like, mm -hmm, like very mm -hmm. like cool and like glamorous and like very contained. And that what draws Lyra. Like so beautiful. It's unreal kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and that what entrances Lyra is that she's so like, like this is like, dazzling and like full of all these stories and she's seen things and she's done things and she's gone off and had these adventures but as a woman and that there's all of these sort of like like things about her life that Lyra covets because she seems so like you know like I've never seen anything like this person before and but what's interesting about like um like the dinner table scene is that like it's immediately clear to the audience and everyone around like she's she's very very clearly like a total asshole like like there's a little <laughs> like you, you like you can see the sort of like snaky you know manipulative thing in in the way she talks to the master like right from the beginning and lyra of course doesn't see it but like you the audience see it or the way that she ignores roger you know he's like going around and to to give them water and like he he doesn't even exist to her yeah yeah, and then well, and then and what I liked about like like this Mrs. Coulter, in contrast, I think to to the way Nicole Kidman was playing it, what I thought was neat about what Ruth Wilson was doing was that it was like um, like the weapon that she was 
using on Lyra was a sort of like faux relatability, you know, mm-hmm. like being kind of like self-deprecating and like, oh, I like I don't even know which fork to use, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing where it's mm-hmm. like like allowing Lyra to sort of feel like their like their peer like the, the, she's sort of like I'm bringing myself down to like this pomp and circumstance is all a little bit too much for me and then Lyra points out like well you're but you're dressed way fancy like you're obviously a way more fancy person than the regular female scholars like than the women that Lyra's used to seeing around you know so like Lyra kind of already clocks was like a little bit of a discrepancy between the fact that she's wearing like velvet and sequins and that she's like i don't know how to be around all of this fancy whatever you know but but that like you know but that she presents herself as somebody like oh oh, i can like i'm not boring you am i or like i'm not interesting you're interesting sorry sorry if i'm going on too long about this thing that i know that you're really interested in you know but it's the kind of thing that like might like an adult might notice but a kid you know exactly a kid's not gonna clock that totally yeah yeah you know, so you have like like the the sort of the Nicole Kidman Mrs. Coulter, which was sort of very much like how it felt in my head, where she's very like 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 aloof and just sort of like this like dazzling like champagne colored like viper, you know? Um, <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> and and from minute one, you're like, this bitch is gonna like turn around and bite you. And then when she does, you're not surprised. And this yeah. Mrs. Coulter, I was watching and thinking like, I bet. That there are people who are watching this show who have never read these books, um, and are not like you know following along with all of the like media accompanying this, who are being like, "Oh, this is so nice. Lyra has a friend, and I'm so excited <laughs> for them to be like horrifically disabused of that notion as soon as yeah, they get to yeah. London." <laughs> because because really like like they go like to, until the end of this episode, like you you get one whole episode before like we have not seen her do anything that would raise red flags to Lyra. You know, I yeah. think it's it's more like, I mean, her, God, her introduction is so fucking great with the, like, the door and the music and the dun 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 dun, dun like, kind of like Darth yeah. Vader entrance. You know? <laughs> and, like, all the, like, male scatter, the like, scholars, like, scattering before her. Exactly, like. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it's, like, that we cut, like, that we cut to her from the priests whispering about, like, don't tell her. And then it's, like, mm-hmm, dun 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 dun. It's, like, oh, this is the best entrance in the world with Wilson. This is what you deserve. <laughs> So, like, we know that, like, this is a person of whom other adults are rightly petrified, you know? Yes. But, right, you right. know, but when she's with Lyra, you know, she, like, she, like, gets down on her level and mm-hmm. she she already knows things about Lyra that she uses to kind of endear her. And she never explains how it is that she knows all these things about, like, Lyra running around. And, like, she sort of, you know, like, just very, it's all very carefully calculated. So I loved that, that they're taking their time in that reveal, because that's another way that they do sort of put us back into Lyra's perspective, you know, where yeah. like, like, if you're watching for all the little clues, when the reveal comes, you'll be able to see like, oh, of course, all along, I should have known that she was evil. But it makes sense why an 11 year old child who is so desperate for an adult to see her and and kind of offered to sort of step in in the kind of parental role that she wants, which basically is like an adult chaperone to the polar bears. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's beautifully 
played, like just sort of all of the ways in which we've seen over the course of the episode up until that point, like all of Lyra's vulnerabilities and how sort of like Mrs. Coulter's kind of precision strike, like, you know, mother figure, check, Arctic explorer, check, someone to like look right at you and make eye contact and pay attention, check, Roger's important to you, got it, gonna play that card also, you know. It is interesting, though, that like there that is another difference from the book, because um, in the book, you were in in the book, you're interested, you're introduced to Mrs. Coulter um, as like this sort of like mysterious figure complicit in the kidnapping of the children. You know, like we first see her sort of like luring away one of the children and then like. You know, like like all these like little oh, that's waves, right? So like when she's introduced with Lyra, you already know, like she, you know, sort of like like Lyra's dazzled by her, but we already, you know, like the audio, the reader already knows yeah, that yeah, she's yeah. involved with like you know the gob, you know, like she is one of the gobblers, right? Um, and so it's it is an interesting change in this case that that the she isn't like the person who's doing the snatching isn't her, you know, like the sort of like. Um, that they haven't yet revealed that piece of her, um, of her role in things, um, which sort of amplifies, like, sort of like, again, for like, for any, anybody in the audience, anybody who watches who hasn't read the books, then that, you know, like when that reveal happens, it will be this like big, like a, a way bigger shock than in the books where you kind of are like a little bit primed to see something, something kind of nefarious coming. Um, but in, but in right. this case, I had forgotten that you knew that first. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like it's an interesting choice, and I think you know, I think uh, it it makes sense in the show as a kind of like um, for the way that like the, because the other thing, of course, is like TV shows like story is structured differently in TV shows from a novel, right? So like it, it kind of makes sense like from that standpoint that like all right, like that's like a dramatic beat that we're gonna save because it's not really necessary. Like you don't need to know right now. You know, like, we'll just sort of, like, we'll, like, we'll get that, the audience will get that revelation when Lyra gets it in this case. But, um, but yeah, like, and especially in sort of, like, in the way that it kind of, like, amplifies, and, and maybe this is why it does it, you know, like, it sort of amplifies, like, the emotional importance of Mrs. Coulter for Lyra, you know, like, it sort of, like, makes this, like, makes this more about, like, Lyra and what she wants and what she needs and the choices that she's making, um, you know, and and sort of like, and so as like audience, we're like going to experience that sort of hope, and then also like experience that kind of like the reveal and the shock and the dismay and all that. You know what I mean? Like, so we're going to kind of like have that emotional journey with Lyra in particular. But it is kind of interesting that that's a place where it's like the book gives more than Lyra's point of view, and the TV show doesn't. Um, yeah. Well, and I and I think it's a I, yeah. I think I think it. It makes sense, like you said, in that it's a way for like, like the, <laughs> that it lets the first episode where we meet Mrs. Coulter be entirely about her relationship with Lyra. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And not and not about the sort of big picture macro world building. Exactly. Um, and it allows and them to which, sort of like it allows them to sort of stretch out the world building into smaller chunks you know so i think like it helps because like if they had tried to sort of fold that in, i feel like they did a good job in this in this episode of like setting up the stakes having to do with a kind of world building like you know the fact that there is a magisterium that is like you know and like if you commit heresy then like 
whoever the magisterium is, is like, they're going to do something terrible. And these heresies have to do with like dust and whatever. Like they set it up enough that like stakes are clear, you know, enough of the world. But I do feel like they did it. It's a good balance of like, you know, enough to understand what's happening and the stakes of it for the characters involved. But it's not so much that like there's, there is no point at which like it becomes like, unbalanced you know where like you get like an exposition dump or like you know so i feel like it, it was, right, it was right. a good choice in terms of um uh both both kind of keeping this episode as an episode um uh kind of at least the the part you know at the at the college sort of focused on lyra and her sort of like setting up her emotional journey basically like kind of giving us a like this is this is who she is and what she wants at this point and here's why she's going to make her decisions um and then also like sort of pacing out um the pacing out the sort of delivery of world building information over the course of yeah of the episodes because i think you're right it would have it would have been like too much of like maybe there, there might have been too much like of a dump of like bleh, you know like mysterious right. and then also they're killed they're kidnapping babies but don't worry about that yet you know what i mean like so yeah right right yeah <laughs> the other very obvious but also worth pointing out thing that a television show has to do especially one that is airing like on a television network and not a sort of like 10 episode Netflix dump all at once is that they have to pace it out. So you come back every week. So, so giving you little snippets, like sort of giving you like just enough backstory to create mystery going into the next episode is smart television writing storytelling. Yeah. So like yes. I, I know like if I'm, if I'm watching this episode of somebody coming in with no context, I have enough of a picture of the world and enough mysteries that are that are rooted again in like developing like in us caring about these people immediately that by the time we get to the end of the episode and we realize that like you know like the boat sailing away and Lyra on the airship and everyone's sort of adventures about to begin that like I have all the information that I need to know okay I want to come back next week because I've been left on this really great sort of cliffhanger but they're mm-hmm. pacing out those reveals and I think one thing that it um I think Mrs. Coulter is a great example, but there's a lot of different pieces of it just in the very first episode that are introduced where it's like, I think it does a really, really intelligent job of working on on both levels simultaneously where like, you know, if you if you have read the books and you know the second she walks in that Mrs. Coulter is like one of the big bads, you can get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of watching Lyra not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And waiting in anticipation for that reveal. Or you you could come into this with no context and then the reveal is like a big gut punch shocker and that's mm-hmm. fun too. But like, you know, the thing like the thing that makes a show rewatchable or that makes a story engaging is and we've talked about this before with other shows that we've covered, it's like you can't you can't rely on just the shock value of a twist to make a story good. Like mm-hmm. you can't, it can't just sort of be about like pulling the rug out from under the audience and like big <gasps> gasp shock. And then like, <laughs> and then that's the whole story. Like that's the entire right. framework that's supporting it, you know? And so I think that like, I think probably because the source material is strong, but also the adaptation is strong. It's written in such a way that you can get the same amount of, um, enjoyment out of it and find so many things to sort of latch onto, whether you are surprised by that or whether you know it's coming and are waiting for it to come. And I think that's the, 
Like, I think that's one of the real challenges of adapting something for the screen that people that has such a strong following, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you both create something that builds out, you know, suspense and big reveals and shockers and surprises for people that are coming to this totally new, just as a show on HBO that they're watching for the first time versus people who are like, for whom it's really emotionally important to get these characters right because the characters are so important to them, you know? Um, and, and so I think Miss Coulter is a great sort of little microcosm of, of that. And I think we'll, you know, I think as it, the show goes on, you know, we'll have more to talk about, like, you know, the, um, the polar bears and other things that are sort of like, yeah. like big, like kind of fan favorite moments, you know, and like how are those sort of reveals handled and, um, and stuff. But I, but I do think that they do a nice job of, Letting it be like it's a great story at whatever level you're watching it at with whatever context or lack of context you're sort of coming into it with. Because even if you know what's happening, they've given you a lot to sort of latch on to. You know, you can sort yeah. of you could, then you can be kind of watching in the background for the details. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the dramatic irony of knowing that Mrs. Coulter is is bad news. Um, and Lyra not knowing and Lyra and, and, and the sort of performance of Mrs. Coulter is, you know, it is like its own sort of like satisfying viewing. So should we talk about the Egyptians? Um, cause that's kind of like the other half of the plot that has not yet intersected with Lyra's plot. Um, other than like at the very end when she's looking out of the dirigible and she sees them all and she, you know, she and, and Pan, um, see them coming down the river and she says the Egyptians are leaving too. Um, and I think, like, the Egyptians come in, like, in, in the book, the Egyptians don't really come in until later points. So it's kind of, like, also just in terms of, like, sort of, like, TV writing efficiency. You know, the way that they've kind of, like, melded these these storylines is uh, – it comes together very – I think very, like, like organically the way they kind of, like, get everybody – like, in one episode, get everybody on the move. You know, I thought was good. But um, you had stuff to say about the uh, ritual. Yes. For people who are um, people who are new to Metastation, one of our semi-regular features in almost every show we cover is Claire's Catholicism Corner, <laughs> where, <laughs> where we get to nerd out about theology. But um, so, well, actually, so something. So this reminds me. Um, so something that I was that I was going to mention at the beginning when we were introducing ourselves and then forgot to is so how I first read these books, how these books first came into my life. Like I'd heard of the play, like sort of very, very distantly back in like, I think 2003, but I didn't really know what it was. But I discovered the books because for most of my 20s, I was a Catholic youth minister. And when the trilogy, like, like whatever year it was, maybe like 06 or 07, when, when, when it really like popped, like when they first became like super popular in the US, um, Catholics went, bananas <laughs> there was like it was like it was like a crisis situation you know um like there was all of these so the um life teen which was the youth ministry program that our church used like i remember like getting like emergency emails like how to talk to your kids about the golden compass you know and like oh my god um, yeah yeah there was like, i think they they wrote like like you the, the way it work was like you'd buy like if you subscribe to this program you get like books of you know with like curriculum for youth nights and stuff but sometimes they they would like send one out like by 
email that was sort of like like responsive to current events. You know, like if there was like a there was like a hurricane, you know, in the Gulf Coast, and they would do like, oh, we have like a you know bonus life night for you on how to talk about like natural disasters or whatever. Like like things that were sort of like responsive to things kind of happening now in in the culture. And they did one on the Golden Compass. There was like a <laughs> like a ha- like a whole thing, a whole like two hour like te- life like youth night for teens on like you know how to talk to your kids about this like atheist book so of course i was like well now i have to read them all immediately right Um, of course and and philip pullman Pullman is like a this is this i'm sure that would like tickle him deeply and b oh my god i think he was was hilarious yeah (laughs) right exactly yeah well and it and it was wild because it was like like i um uh, I remember, um, oh, actually I was, and I was talking to, this is a very brief digression, but I was talking to, I was telling that story to a friend of mine, um, one of my coworkers, the day after the episode aired, we were both talking about how we had both watched it. Um, and we were swapping stories about having like grown up in Christian schools. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, the Catholics did not like the golden compass. And he was like, oh, I can top that. Cause his, his Christian school and his church not only didn't like the golden compass, but they didn't like Pokemon because it's about evolution, which was a new <laughs> one for me. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. That, that was like, it was my favorite thing I've ever heard in my whole life. That's I was like, oh amazing. my God. Um, it is kind of evangelicals, like, like man. Yeah, Pokemon is like it's like evolution crossed with the Hunger Games, I guess. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So like so much to hate. So anyway, that made me laugh. But but um so uh so I so I came to these books sort of thinking like, all right, like Catholics are mad, what are they mad about? Right, um right. and you know, I mean like you can like I understand why like I understand why Catholicism the institution doesn't love it because it doesn't mm. come off great, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but I, but just like I, as an individual Catholic found like, I mean, like I, I love it. And I feel like there's a lot of things to think about, but, um, but one of the things that I, that I really, really love that I did not necessarily remember from, I didn't remember a lot about the Egyptians from the books. Um, but I also, you know, know that a lot of this was sort of like invention for the show, but I think one of my favorite things um, in the pilot was this sort of this kind of the contrast between um, the little the very small sort of snippets that we see um, of inside the magisterium for you know and accompanied by sort of the way everyone talks about like what the magisterium is and its power and stuff um, juxtaposed next to this um, the demon ritual of the Egyptians, which is sort of the first glimpse of them and their culture that we see. Um, and, and what I, what I thought was really fascinating about it is like, you know, so, okay. So the magisterium, you know, being sort of like this kind of, you know, like Opus Dei Illuminati Catholicism. So sort of like, right, like the worst, <laughs> like the worst yeah. of the kind of corrupt totalitarian, you know, medieval. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and the aesthetic of it, which like the, God, the production design of this show is so good, but like, you know, the, the aesthetic of that building being like, you know, 50%, the sort of like opulent medieval hush of like, a Benedictine monastery, and then a fifty percent the kind of like expensive, clean lines and carpeting of like a big money Southern Baptist megachurch. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, this is perfect. I have no notes, you know. Um, <laughs> like it's 
It's both super expensive and totally soulless and generic. I was like, 10, 10, A plus, this is exactly right. And I think I think they like clean the blanknesses because in this universe, the magisterium, I mean, it's sort of like, it's almost like a if, if um, Protestantism had sort of grown a uh, uh, centralized right because like so because like they have like pope john calvin and whatever so it's like it's kind of like if it's like catholicism but with the, like the the like iconoclastic um aesthetic of certain kinds of of protestantism exactly like it like it reminded me of the the like the thing that it feels the most sort of i guess to to me in, I mean, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can make the argument that this is sort of this is <laughs> me passing off all the problems to the Protestants. But it does, like, it, <laughs> to me, it 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 feels like the 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 kind of the closest allegory, I, in my opinion, to what to how the magisterium functions in this world feels more like white evangelical white supremacist fundamentalism in america and not so much catholicism in america although catholicism is part of it but like the sort of chokehold that that very specific kind of evangelical fundamentalist thinking has over like our politics and our politicians you know, it sort of feels like this, this is like a, a amplified outgrowth of that combined with the sort of historical, you know, sort of centuries old majesty and grandeur part of it of like all the worst sort of excesses of Catholicism. But it feels like it feels really contemporary, which I, yeah. which I appreciated. Well, the other, the other, as- the other piece of it, I think is, um, is the like, parts of it of the the specific history of anglicanism in england which is that so like where the church of england like was for a long time like like genuinely like the church of the state um and you know so like historically in england you know in order to attend to be allowed to attend oxford or cambridge you had to be anglican like you had to sign a statement of your of your, you know, belief in Anglican tenets. And so if you were not Anglican, which meant like if you were Catholic or any other kind of Protestant, which is called dissenters, then you couldn't attend those colleges, you know, like um, for a long time you were like, like literally disenfranchised, like you couldn't vote, you couldn't hold public office. Um, if you're Catholic, you couldn't own land within a certain distance of um, London. Um, so, so like there's that, that, that additional, I think, layer of like the actual – overlap or 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 melding of church with state control yeah you know and it, and it makes sense because like because like i think so much of from what i understand of like sort of pullman's critique of religion has to do with the kind of ways that religion winds up sort of centralizing become becomes a sort of like hegemonic um oppressive um centralized sort of power right um and so so it makes sense that this church is like you take all of the different forms of christianity in the west that have managed to like wend their way into having a kind of like oppressive chokehold over public political sort of personal life and that's the magisterium (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Like you, you keep the power and the sort of God and religion as forces for psychological control mm-hmm. and you keep the political and sort of social structures and you, and you remove anything that is personal or that is beautiful you know like there's there's no stained glass in the magisterium there's no color there's nothing that makes it about human beings it's entirely Mm. like an institution that exists as an institution you know like we're not the magisterium has no connection to anyone's like personal spirituality that's what makes it a contrast to this really beautiful ritual that we see of the gyptians where it's like Whatever their, you know, belief system is or isn't, this ritual that is obviously, like, sacred to them, you know, and it has, like, the the music is so beautiful, you know, there's a song that they're all singing, and the boy, the older boy, like, walking through the crowd, and he has, like, the crucible, and everyone has, like, a piece of silver from their own homes or their own, you know, like, passed down to them or some piece of themselves, and they put it mm-hmm. in um in the crucible and then that becomes like forged into the ring that he wears but the thing that I thought was really striking about it is that the person performing that rite is his mom so it's like it gives you this this contrast between like you know ritual in the magisterium which is so kind of institutionalized as to be faceless essentially like blank in a lot of ways in which individual humans don't matter. And then you have over here on the other side, the sort of the scrappy outcast people where, um, it, where the, the rites that are sacred to them are a ritual that anybody can perform, you know? So she, like, she's a woman, she's the mom of the boy who, you know, and, and it, ha- it has a lot of the trappings of a baptism. You know, there's clearly, there's like a, the guy that comes up from the crowd, obviously serving in like a sort of godparent function, you know? And, um, or I guess maybe even more like, like confirmation, like you're sort of your, your ritual of, being kind of fully welcomed as an adult into the community and the sort of signifier that you have, um, you know, that you have reached sort of your full, like, adult wisdom and you're no longer a child, you know, so the function that a confirmation serves or a bar mitzvah serves or a quinceanera or whatever, like all these, you know, so many cultures have a kind of a right that serves that function. Um, and often they are religious, or or have a kind of like you know welcome into the church community sort of aspect and so it's like so so there was something very like you know i was having all kinds of like vatican ii thoughts you know watching it about like this sort of <laughs> the contrast between like this idea that the rituals that matter can only be performed by the sort of members of the power elite at the highest levels versus this idea that the rituals that matter belong to the people felt like a really nice kind of subtle, I think, tension running between like the two priests walking down the blank hallway versus the mom standing up there with her sons and her family, like in front of the whole community as the community welcomes him into their ranks. And he has this ring now that has like a piece of every family, you know, it's like, it was, which is so beautiful. Like I was just like, like, I, I, I love that whole scene. You know, one, one thing that I like, and, and, you know, for those who are new to our podcast, um, uh, so Claire's our resident Catholic. Um, I am our resident atheist. And I was raised, I was raised, um, Lutheran and, and I'm really interested in theology. Like I study, you know, like one thing that I 
that I like write a lot about is is um religious writing. But um but I personally am an atheist and and so like one thing that I really one thing, one reason that I really, really love uh, his dark materials, you know, like why, why when I read these books, I just like, like they meant so much to me, is that you know, I think one thing that is that's so beautiful about them is that you know, like these are atheist books, but they aren't anti-spiritual or nihilistic atheism, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not like that mm-hmm. kind of like, like dude bro like scientistic atheism that's really all about being like i'm smarter than people who believe in god right right it's not christopher hitchens exactly exactly it is not christopher hitchens atheism just like giving all the atheists bad name you know like like fuck off um (laughs) (laughs) uh but one thing that i that i think that this sort of like the, the kind of contrast that you're talking about is really sort of encapsulates about that is that you know, you have like the contrast is really like the sort of like the the key um difference that you sort of see is like on the one hand for like the magisterium and and the people affiliated with it, um, you know, like personal belief is antithetical to them, right? Like like they like the point is they don't want anybody to like if you have your own personal beliefs, like that's heretical, right? Because it's about power. And so ritual is about power, right? Like ritual is about like sort of like codifying power in terms of codifying belief and it's about codifying power in terms of who gets to declare what kinds of rituals valid and who gets to perform them and like all that kind of stuff you know so like on the one hand you have ritual and belief as things that can be that can be forces of oppression but you know the thing that i love about you know about his dark materials is that is that it doesn't fall into the trap of conflating ritual with religion, right? Like where like the thing that this kind of like demonstrates is that like ritual has an important function for human beings. You know, like it's meaningful. Like the reason that we constantly like we keep coming up with rituals is because they 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 do something important for us, you know? Like there's a need for a kind of like for for rituals, for sort of like actions, for words, for for like times when we get together collectively and we recognize a person or a moment is important and, you know, and we have ways of sort of like helping people understand things that are happening to them. Like if you think about, you know, like your, you know, that like the, the ritual that the Egyptians perform for that the moment, you know, for like children whose whose demons have settled, it's also really like you said, it's like it's like confirmation in the sense of like this is also ritual about saying like you're an adult now. Here's what it being an adult means in our society. This is us sort of recognizing and sort of like re-welcoming you into your new role. You know, like this is and also recognizing like you know, because it's not a coincidence that these kinds of rituals all cluster around the time when you go through puberty, right? You know, it's also kind of a way to be like, something huge and awkward is happening to your body, you know? <laughs> like, um, but like, we're gonna like, it's this is like a thing that's going on and it has meaning. And you know, like, this is a moment where we sort of like say, yes, you're different today than you were yesterday. And so we're gonna re-welcome you and sort of like reinitiate you into this, um, into this collective. And so like, one thing that I really like about you know, about these books is the way that, like, that they think really deeply and carefully about, like, like, we're creatures, like, we need meaning, you know what I mean? Like, we need, we, like, Mm -hmm. we, we, human beings just, like, 
like compulsively create meaning, right? Like we need it. Like we, we impute it in places where it might not exist. Like in some ways, arguably, that's what an imagination is, you know? Um, mm-hmm. this is something that's fundamental to our, to, to being, I think, a human being. At least, I mean, I don't know, like maybe, maybe other animals do it too, but at the very least, like it's, it's as fundamental to being a human being. And that's something that, that is true regardless of whether you organize that need around the belief in a particular God and a particular religion, but it's also something that can be kind of like used for good or used for evil. Um, mm-hmm. that the need itself is kind of neutral. And what matters is, like, what people do with it, you know? So we get this kind of contrast of, like, on the one hand, you have the magisterium who are using it for, you know, these, like, kind of, like, really nefarious purposes and who will try to, like, do things like sort of, like, squash exploration and knowledge, you know, try to, like, stop people from learning more things about the universe from sort of, like, discovering or or communicating certain kinds of truth because it goes against the the sort of like codes of belief around which their their sort of like power and their structure is built. On the other hand, you have these like more positive, um, uh, it, you know, like sort of demonstration of it with Egyptians, where it's really just about sort of like about like community bonding, you know, about sort of like affirmation and and connection and sort of like and and sort of. Um, forging these really sort of strong relationships among these people, um, you know, to keep them together in a society where they're kind of like on the outside. Um, yeah, well, and I think that's a that's a really, I think, important piece of it, too, is just the fact that like, who the Egyptians are is is like outsiders from the power elite like they yeah even if yeah, they yeah. believe the same set of things they don't have access to the power and protection of a place like jordan college even exactly. if they ascribe to that same set of beliefs so it's kind of like what like like what does the magisterium offer to the egyptians at all in any way that would benefit or enrich their lives. Nothing. I mean, like Mrs. Coulter even says, like, you know, like the, like the cops aren't going to do anything, <laughs> you know, like, right. Yeah. That comes up multiple times. Like there is like the, the, the institutions in power, the Egyptian like leader guy, you know, even says it too, like, like no institution is going to protect us. Like no, there is no societal infrastructure in this world, which is dominated by the magisterium that cares about the individual lives of these people on margins. And so that's why they've formed their own kind of community. Like they don't, they don't have a way into even the like, so like theoretically quote unquote positive, whatever things that the magisterium offers to those it protects, you know, like it is selective in who gets access to those privileges. One of the things that I think I was reading in, um, I think it was the Vulture recaps. Um, Devin Maloney is recapping the show for Vulture and she's brilliant and wonderful. And, um, and one of the things that she was talking about was like, like the, the sort of conceptualization of who the Egyptians are is, is one of the, it was handled well in translating it from script to screen. Cause on the, on the page, like in the book, all of these sort of populations of people are sort of like kind of like fantasticalized versions of like 
ethnic and racial groups. And so like he says Egyptian, it's more like like in the book, it's more like sort of like the Romani people. Like it's like an ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that like I think it would be super problematic, especially calling them Egyptians to trans because like that is like derived from a slur for how many people to to translate that literally to the show like that's like that has not yeah that hasn't aged well but but what <laughs> i but the idea of making them just kind of like a a multicultural ragtag group of misfits you know like you see like lots of people with physical disabilities lots of people of like all different yeah like ethnicities and visit like it's it's that that if you accept gyptian as sort of a a catch-all term for this community that has on some level organized and come together because of or sort of shaped by their being ostracized by the hierarchical power structures that keep the rest of this world sort of like pristine and and clean and organized and hierarchical and tidy, you know, and whatever. Then like on some level, it's kind of like the one place in this world where individual humanity really exists and is celebrated because what brought all those people there isn't just like, you know, you happened to be born of this ethnicity, but like you came to this group or your family brought you to this group because there was something about you that didn't fit in, that was different, um, that wasn't welcomed by this kind of like beige, homogenous, religious, you know, mindless kind of hierarchical institution. And so I think what that kind of tells us about what, what kind of world we want the world of this story to become, I think is really interesting. You know, like it sort mm-hmm. of, it, it gives us a sort of the, like what looks to the people of Oxford, like the kind of seedy underbelly, you know, like, Oh, mm-hmm. the sketchy people who live down by the docks, you know? And then in reality, <laughs> like they're the only people who are, you know, who have, who we see like really forming a community based around like, communal need and not yeah. necessarily like following the sort of like like not necessarily just sort of being like who they're told to be you know so i think there's something yeah. and i think that makes their their sort of ownership of of their own rituals you know like really profound like if the if the most important moment of a person's life is this sort of ceremony where your demon settles into its final form and that's kind of the marker of adulthood and if that's a ritual that anybody can perform, like, you know, you don't need a priest to come do it, then they have an ownership of over their own, like, what community means and what being a human means and sort of like the their relationship between the person and the soul. Like all of these sort of things, you know, that we think of as what religion is about. It's like the Egyptians have everything that's good about religion and then the Mediterranean <laughs> has everything that's bad about religion. Right. <laughs> I think what I like about the books as, you know, like – like obviously, like Philip Pullman is an atheist, and I am not, but he's an atheist who believes in the existence of a human soul. You know, yeah. like the mm-hmm. like the 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 externalization of the soul in the form of a demon is perhaps one of the single most significant pieces of world building in the entire series of these books. You oh, know? it is, um, it is, yeah. and and so I, so that I think is something. Actually, maybe we should maybe we should spend a few minutes on that because I think something that I. 
that I think is really interesting about the demons. Just like, and we, and we only see a little bit of them. Like we, we sort of see them kind of in the background, which is always fun. Like in a, you know, in crowd scenes that you have like people milling around and that they all have animals milling around, which is such a delightful detail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like yes. just like walking down the hallway with like a bird on their shoulder, um, <laughs> but or like the the gecko helping him find the book in the library. Yeah, that shelf, was so you know? cute, <laughs> um, which I loved. But um, but uh, so the only the only demons that we really kind of spend much time with are you know Pan obviously, and then um, Azriel's Snow Leopard. I think is the only other demon that really talks meaningfully. And so there's just something that I think is really is really cool and neat and worth unpacking about the fact that the demon is both that person's soul and also kind of like imbued with their own personality in some way. You know, like like there are times where Pan is telling Lyra to do things she doesn't want to do. And that's kind of an externalization of those inner voices in herself, obviously, but with a personality, you know, and, um, and then I also noticed, and I could not remember, you might know, because you read it more recently, if it's explained in the books, but, um, but that, that gender isn't part like that, like the soul is not necessarily gendered, you know, that it is, Azriel's- no, it is, it is. It the Azriel is, is a books. woman that hers is male. Is are they yes. all like that? Yes, that's what I thought. Yes, so that I mean that's one sort of thing where it's like, what happens if you're non-binary? Um, right. Yeah, but but yeah, no. In the books, if you're uh, cisgendered female, then your Damon will be male and vice versa. I would be so interested in. I wonder if there are any trans or non-binary writers who have like written on that like i just i could be so interested to hear like head canons and theories yeah yeah, yeah. i feel like um, it must be just because like it's been such a, a a popular series for so for long enough you know like it feels like that's something that someone somewhere must have uh thought about or wrote written about what i do appreciate about i mean like apart from the fact that like you know uh, again, just like one of the just sort of world building details that has not aged great in 2019 is sort of is this idea that like gender exists on this very strict binary. But what I do appreciate about that is I do like the idea that what that implies about the the human soul is that we all contain like gender that exists exists inside. You know, like the like the that yeah that a man yeah. having a female demon or a woman having a male demon means that like inside of like like it's sort of in some ways i think i appreciate that it kind of lessens the distinctions between like what is qualitatively male and female yes everyone is sort of like non-binary in some sense because right yeah because you you are sort of like fundamentally who you are is like spans the the gender spectrum Right. And like for some people, it's like your, you know, person body is male and your demon is female like Azriel, or maybe your person body is female and your demon is male like Lyra and that there's everyone contains everything inside of them. So it does feel like there's room for, you know, and then presumably I would, I mean, I would, if I had to guess, I would guess that like, if you're like, you know, if your demon, if you're non-binary, you know, or or intersex or whatever, that like your demon probably would be 
two as opposed to like because because that sort of that kind of keeps the balance you know but the show i'm sure will not go there and that's fine but i do but i do like that i think you know particularly for for its time you know written like a you know several decades before we were really having these conversations at the level that we're having them now about like what gender means and and sort of trying to move away from this kind of gender essentialist binary but i but i do feel like even within that this idea that for example um that somebody like Azriel who presents as all of these sort of very stereotypically masculinized tra- you know he's like an explorer and he's like we you know when we first meet him you know he's like he's like trumping through the water to rescue this child and he's out on the snow you know like he's he's a very like he's a, he's a manly man you know um <laughs> and and his you know and his demon is female and that that does not sort of like lessen his manliness in any way that's just like how the world works you know i think so there's something i guess it's different it's different for lyra only because just sort of like the way the way society codes gender it's like girls always get sort of more points for having more masculine traits and men are like and then it's like a detraction for men to have feminine traits yeah because you know but um but so that is something that i that i a piece of the world building that i really like that I do feel is is really thoughtfully done sort of is this idea that like in a way gender is sort of meaningless because everybody has sort of like one that you hat wear on your human body and one that you wear on your animal body but you have both of them and that's the point. Do you want to know a a really heartbreaking uh demon related thing about the second book in the second trilogy? Always. Yes. Um, apparently, oh, which in I second trilogy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Second trilogy, yeah. So the first book in the second trilogy is the Book of Dust, which is like the the prequel to these. So it's like Lyra's in it, but she's like a little, she's a baby. It's like a, a little baby. Um, but the second and the third, I guess, are when Lyra are, are sequels. So it's like when Lyra's an adult, and I haven't read the second one yet. But apparently, like one of the like sort of things happening in it is that um, Lyra and Pan are like. Like they don't like each other, so it's like partly what, ha- what happened about what happens like when, when like your soul doesn't like you. Oh, I don't want to know that. But I know. I mean, it makes sense, yeah. But it makes sense. I mean, like I that's mean- one of the, like one of the things that I that it, like you know like I love the demons as like a piece of world. Like that's just like such an amazing little bit of world building, and I want a demon. But I but like one thing that's really fascinating about the demons is like you know, and throughout the books, you sort of see that it's not a simple relationship, you know, and like often, like even in this first episode, there's like, there is that, there's tension between Lyra and Pan, you know, like Pan will tell her like, don't do that, you know, like when she's, when she tells Mrs. Coulter, you know, like that, that Roger has to come along and then he'll come, you know, and Pan's like, um, maybe you should check with Roger before you like sign him up to leave the only place that he's ever known and like go to London with you. And she's like, nah, whatever. He'll, he'll be fine. He wants to come. You know, it's like Pan is often the kind of, you know, sort of like calls her out or is like uncomfortable with things that she does. Um, and there's other, like, I remember there's like a scene in one of the books, um, I can't remember now which one, if it's the first book, one of the later ones, but there's, there's a scene where like, you know, there's like a man, this is like really like sort of evil man. I think he's like a, an assassin or like a thug of some kind, but like he, you know, like his, his demon fails to capture somebody and he like, he, he like beats his demon, you know? So there's a sort of sense of like, like there's some like deep world building in terms of like the, your demon is your soul. It's a part of you. But what that means 
is complicated because like you can hate yourself, you know, like if your demon is your deepest right, part of you yeah. and you hate yourself, you know, like and and you and 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 if the deepest part of you is sort of like something that you want to reject for whatever reason, then you can be tethered forever to this thing that you know that you hate or that you reject or that you have like a dysfunctional relationship with, you know, like that that having a soul like this 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 creature that's your companion and your soul and whatever it's like it's a beautiful thing and it can be wonderful and there are sort of like these deeply touching scenes where Lyra derives great comfort from Pan and vice versa and, and other characters do too so it can be this really beautiful thing but it can also be like a really like fucked up, you know, like really sort of tragic thing depending on who you are, you know, and like, and, and, and what kind of issues you have with your own self, which I think feels like a realistic way to approach, you know, like a, a relationship with something that is with you everywhere you go, all the time, your whole life. And knows everything about you, knows all of your deepest motivations, like every time that you've done something, anytime that you do, you tell yourself you're doing something for one reason and your demon can tell you you're not. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that they can talk to you, that they interact yeah. with you, like that yeah. they, like it's like the difference, which to me it's like, so this is like, this is the qualitative difference, right, between like a demon and a Patronus, you know, like a, a Patronus is like, uh, you know, a manifestation that sort of like appears and then disappears. And it's kind of like an allegorical self. And it exists only to help you in this sort of like very straightforward kind of way, you know, and, um, and then it goes away again. So like it is, you know, like it's, it is part of you. It is a piece of your soul. It reflects you. Um, and it serves one sort of very specific function, but it doesn't interact with you. It sort of interacts with the world on your behalf. But like, you don't have a conversation with your Patronus, you know, it's sort of like, it like pops out of your wand and kills some Dementors and then it like evaporates, you know. And so the demon being both a, you know, a, a like a physical being with a physical sort of material existence um instead of being sort of a you know a thing of like ephemera and something that is there with you all the time and and is sort of hardwired to be like a, a conscience but also like but like more than that like the sort of the voice like he's like the, like the voice that you're always sort of trying to kind of at least for Lyra it's like like Pan is the voice that she's frequently trying to shut out you know like the, Pan is the person who's like reminding her to be prudent and thoughtful and aware of other people and kind of like you know this thing you want to do is dangerous or you haven't thought this through you know and so the sort of the the role that he serves and you know and because she's a kid and she's resistant to hearing those kind of chidings from, you know, everybody. She doesn't really want to hear it from Pan either, you know, and then, and whereas Asriel's with the snow leopard, which, and we don't see a lot of her, but she, but what's interesting, I think about, about the snow leopard is that like some of the few moments that we see of her, like, she's also very like, um, like she's a very kind of practical grounded character but like there are a few moments where we sort of see part of what her role is is like reminding Azriel that like other people exist you know like like she's the one who's like you left a kid in a box like <laughs> you know like yeah, exactly. like left to his own yeah. devices Azriel would not remember and so the snow leopard has yeah. to be like 
get the kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, Asriel's um, kind of got, like, the, like, mad scientist slash absent-minded professor shit go. Like, he's so wrapped up in, in you know, his sort of, like, intellectual quest. And so she has to be like, dude, uh, there's a giant snowstorm that you will need to get off the mountain to not be caught in. So, like, yeah, maybe exactly. you should do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I was like, I really like this. It's such a, like, very small little moments, but, but, but convey, I think, do, do a lot of very economical work and conveying, like, a whole personality and sort of, like, what's the, like, what's the relationship that Azrael and his demon have and what's the function that she serves in his life in sort of completing him you know like what are the things that she has that exist in her so that he has them because he doesn't have them necessarily on his own and i think that for you know for for lyra and pants and lyman who have a more sort of messy adversarial relationship because she's a kid and because and because he is also you know i mean i think the the demon settles at a certain age because like the demon you know, a manifestation of a child's soul is as messy as a child is until they sort right. of like, and as the, you know, settling and- into its final. Fo- yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so I think the ritual is, is as much about the, the demon sort of finding its own, like, who am I? You know, and it's so it's sort of like the demon changing forms is a sort of a neat little way to kind of externalize. The process kids go through and trying to kind of figure out what they are, like the yeah. demon is. And, the, too, and also the just, process, the process kids go through of trying on different identities, you know, because that's something exactly that, that kids yeah. Do. Like you sort of like you try out, you see things and you try them out, you know, to see how they feel, to see what it's like. In a way, like like, and kids have that sort of that flexibility to try on different identities and sort of like put them on and take them off and put them on and take them off in a way that, you know. As an adult, you just kind of like <clears throat> you sort of ossify a little bit. But I think like the other thing that I that I really like about demons that why one reason I think that they're just you know, like such a like genius and really like profound kind of or, or very like generative piece of um of kind of like world building is that I, I like that they allow for a much more complex and in some ways probably more realistic version of identity. Then we usually think because we usually think about identity as as unitary, you know, as like who am I? As if I am one thing, you know, as if I am like some totally consi- internally consistent single identity all the time, you know. Um, and and that's something that we also tend to even more so than in real life, I think, like tend to ask of characters, you know, like who is this character? What are their stable traits, right? And so I think you know one sort of like psychological truth is that. The idea that we have in a sort of stable identity, like that, that the idea of identity is kind of like a fiction that we tell ourselves, you know, like we sort of like make up stories about who we are to kind of like to to understand ourselves as being a consistent sort of unitary person, a me, a self. And, you know, and and when you do or say or or things happen that go against that you know that can be like a sort of crisis point because like we really rely on the sense of the single sense of self and so like one interesting thing about daemons is that it sort of allows for an identity that is more varied you know like you both you are yourself yeah. and your daemon you know and like and if those things are opposites or if they're if they're at odds then that is like that's the kind of expression of like the ways in which a self can be multiple, can be 
conflicted or split or at odds. You know, the way that like Lyra can be impulsive and headstrong and impetuous, you know, and, and kind of like a little bit callous. And at the same time, like the, there is still something in her that is aware of other people and, you know, like, and can sort of have the thought, like, maybe you shouldn't do this, maybe you should check, whatever. Like, those are both parts of her. And we've all had that experience, you know, where you're, like, doing something and, like, you're simultaneously, like, part of your brain is going, you shouldn't do that, you know, you know, like, here are going to be the consequences, have you thought about this, have you thought about that? And then you just, like, went ahead and did it anyway, you know, like, those, both of those exactly. things are happening. Yeah. They're both mm-hmm. you, like, both those things are you. Um, you know, the fact that you went ahead and did whatever it was while the other part of you is telling you not to, you know, like in some ways, like your actions, your actions define you more in terms of what, who you are to the rest of the world, but it doesn't erase that there was the part of you that said, don't do that, you know? So it's like, so yeah, so I just, I kind of like the way that allows for a kind of more like complex and complicated, um, form of identity. Yeah, and like the self in dialogue with the self, you yeah, know, exactly, like, like exactly. it's a, it's a way to put that on screen. And I think that's, you know, one of the, one of the things that makes this, I think, sort of uniquely suited to going from the page to the screen as an adaptation is speaking as somebody who has written both novels and plays and, and has thought a lot about sort of like the, the different, the ways that different mediums allow you to kind of understand who these characters are and what they're doing. Like one of the really hard things about translating a book to a visual medium, you know, sort of the, the gap between like reading something on a page versus seeing it on a stage or on a screen is that, you know, like even if you're in, you know, in a, in third person and not in the first person, like you're in the mind of like, you have so much more space to kind of dig into like, what is this character thinking? Like what, like all of the sort of their interior life, what they're feeling at every single moment, like you're inside their mind. And that can be really tricky to translate to, you know, to a visual medium. Like when I'm writing a book, I can, I can, I can give you the audience. Like I can have a character think something and say something that's totally different. And you know that that character is lying, you know, just as an example, like you, you know, because you hear their whole thought process and then you hear what they say. And on screen or on the stage, it's like, that's, that's a thing that, an actor has to convey and that can be, and that has to be done sort of subtly because that's how these things happen in real life. But like, you're not inside their head. And, and I think that one of the cool functions that demons serve that I think makes this, um, work sort of uniquely well, I think as an adaptation is like the existence of pan gives us a way to like dig into Lyra's interior life in a way that if the story was exactly the same, but there weren't any demons in it would be much harder for us to get to, you know, like, like if you, you sort of think about what we've seen so far and you like up to the point of the story, but you subtract all the demons out of it, then then the Lyra that you meet, you would believe that she sort of, that no one's ever put it pushing on the brakes, you know, mm-hmm. like that there's no yeah. kind of um, impulse control or like, like that she's kind of just a, a total, just like chaos Muppet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just like running around, knocking things over, kind of like thoughtless and a little selfish and just sort of 
purely kind of driven by her own, you know, id, basically. And you would also think that Azriel is a lot more kind of, like you said, sort of like mad scientist, like wrapped up in his own things, super kind of unaware of other people than he's actually revealed to be. And so what the demons allow us to do, like, like by making what ordinarily might be inner thought processes, conversations that we hear out loud between Lyra and another character, as opposed to just like things that Lyra is thinking you know, like it's like you can you can go down so many more levels because like what the demon represents a lot of times are things that aren't conscious. So like you'd have to like like you'd have to dig really, really deeply in prose in order to sort of unearth some of that kind of stuff. And it would be impossible for an actor to convey adequately all of those levels. You know, like it's just, so we can we can drill down so, so, so much deeper. Um because you're taking all of these things that on a page are like, you know, us exploring the sort of deep interior life of a book's protagonist, and you're allowing them to be like a conversation between a mouse and a little girl, you know, <laughs> and or a ferret or whatever he is. And, um, and that allows us to like, it gives us a different level of context for it, but it also sort of it kind of shorthands some of that really, really deep digging that like on a book would take hundreds and hundreds of pages. And in a TV adaptation, you'd sort of have to agree to scrap it. I mean, like you wouldn't be able to, it would never work on screen. You'd you sort would of never be work. Like, well, yeah. do your best, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So I, I like that it, that it allows us to, um, to sort of get to know, like you said, like the, the deepest layers of all of these people and like you know and i think on all of the characters we meet as adults who we sort of see you know who are the adult demons that we've met so far that they that they really do sort of feel like i okay i already understand like the masters is a raven you're like yes i totally understand how how these two sides of him kind of like live in conversation you know yeah. and okay let um, me let me let me ask you this <clears throat> yeah in the same way that if you are cis male, your uh, your demon is cis female, do you think that if you are an order Muppet, your demon is always a chaos Muppet and vice versa? I think so. Yes, I do. <laughs> I think so. I I Because that is the only way the universe stays in balance, Aaron. Is that like... <laughs> There have to be an equal number of order Muppets and chaos Muppets in the world. That's true. Yes. So I think both (laughs) Asriel and Lyra are very clearly chaos Muppets with order Muppet demons. Yes. Um, And I think the master is pretty clearly an order Muppet with a chaos Muppet demon because, you know, he was exactly because it seems like like it was the Raven's idea. Yeah. Yeah, The Raven was like pushing like he was like nervous about the poison. The Raven's like, do it, do it. You know, so like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, and Mrs. Coulter, who and well, I think when when we when we get more into her backstory, I think circling back to the demon conversation will also be super interesting because yes, she yes. and her demon have a very unique relationship. Her but I think that like she amazing. is an order Muppet with a yes. chaos Muppet. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. I think uh, I agree. But yes, I, agree. So I do. I think that is very true. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> You're welcome. I knew you would enjoy that question. <laughs> also, it's very important to establish 
for mm-hmm. for our deep deep understanding of all of these characters and their demons, and also the sort of like the way that demons function. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about dust because we get a little. We you know obviously like that's a, like a, another piece of like sort of kicking off the plot. Um, and like as as a person who has written a play about Galileo. Um, and, (laughs) and, you know, obviously, like, he's, he's probably the most famous person to ever run afoul of the Catholic Church over his scientific discoveries. Um, uh, what do you think of this, um, the way that they sort of present this kind of, like, conflict between, like, sort of, like, the, the scientific discoveries being made, by Azrael having to do with dust and then that sort of like automatic, you know, sort of like reaction from everybody basically being like, like, this is heresy. The magisterium would like is would like, you know, do whatever nefarious things the magisterium does if they found out that we were researching this. I have so many thoughts on this. Thank you for asking. <laughs> You're um, <welcome>. So, <laughs> so I think so one of the one of the details about that, that slice of the story that I really love that felt sort of chillingly topical was the sort of the, you know, the, the way everyone reiterates the words academic freedom and then immediately followed by a reminder that that freedom is like totally conditional. And it reminded me of the way in 21st century America on the right in particular, when people talk about freedom of speech as this thing that is like freedom of speech, unless I disagree with you, and then you shouldn't be allowed to talk, you know, freedom of speech, unless you're saying something that I think is dangerous. And then I think it's actually really important that the government has the right to take your freedom of speech away. Or conversely, somebody says something shitty and are then rightly trashed for it. And then it's like, well, now you're infringing on my freedom of speech. And it's like, well, no, you weren't thrown in jail for it. You just like got banned from Twitter, you dumbass. You know, like, so this is this very (laughs) muddy understanding of what freedom of speech means, quote unquote, but that it is often used in a context where it's like, you have total permission to say and do whatever you want to, unless I don't like it. And then I would like the right to take it away. And the way they talk about what academic freedom under the magisterium means, Ezreal sort of points this out. He makes a very sort of pointed comment about like following this sort of research thread to its natural conclusion is the only way to actually get to a place of true academic freedom, like actual academic freedom, which is going to require, you know, sort of implicitly like either dismantling the magisterium or sort of removing its chokehold from this college. And, and that like, it's already sort of clear on some level that like, you know, that it's not unintentional that there's sort of a big fuck you to the magisterium sort of embedded in the work. Like the, he, that he knows like we will never be able to actually do the work we want to do if the magisterium feels like they can just sort of send out snipers and chop off Grumman's head, you know? Um, so I think he's very aware of the risks of what he's doing and, and the contrast between, you know, the way everyone talks about the, you know, the sort of, the, the kind of gracious benevolence of the magisterium to give us, fr- like, freedom being a thing that somebody has to give you permission to have. Yeah. Sort of like, 
feels sort of like um very like Orwellian in a way that I sort of enjoy. But yeah, um, but in the you know in terms of the Galileo stuff, I think you know what's so interesting as sort of a parallel to what's going on here with Azriel is that the sort of secular deification, like the sort of popular myth of Galileo basically is that the thing he got busted for was discovering something that the church wanted suppressed. And, and that both sort of is and isn't what happened. You know, like Copernicus had already published on, uh, and, and other people had too, other natural scientists had too, had like published works that were fairly uncontroversial about the sort of possibility of heliocentrism before Galileo came along. What he did with it, which caused all the problems was that he, he wrote a book on, like he took money from the church to write a book on like the Pope wanted a sort of like neutral both sidesy, you know, we don't know, either side could be right kind of book about heliocentrism that in in some way would sort of function as like a sort of work of like light propaganda to make the church look more open-minded. Um and and what Galileo did was write a book that basically was like heliocentrism is the real deal. And anyone who thinks it isn't, like this specific Pope, you know, who I'm gonna put in here, thinly disguised as a giant idiot, is really stupid. And he did that on on the Vatican's dime, which was really politically stupid. And he sort of, and he was kind of bullheaded about like, like he, he, he made a lot of noise. And so the, the where he got in trouble was not necessarily specific to the science. It was the making of the noise around it because it forced the church to have to take a position when they wanted to not have to take a position. But I think what's interesting there is the way that that shows. And I think this is like something that's like, you know, very true in his dark materials, true then and still true now. Like this is always true is that scientific knowledge is always or can be very deeply political. You know, so like exactly, the, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. The argument that the sun was the center of the universe was both a scientific argument and a political argument, and a theological sort of like religious argument, and an article argument about like the nature of man and the nature of power and the nature of God, sort of simultaneously. And you know, and you had exactly. like Galileo yeah. basically being like, like being like, look, the science says this is right, so if you don't like it, like you're a dumbass. You know, and the reason why that was a huge problem, huge issue, and the reason why the church wanted to be like, we want to like not totally dismiss that, but then also like not is because like because of the amount of theological, political, like sort of weight that having that that sort of making that decision came out, and like you know, so I, I think like sort of contemporarily, like the this is like so so relevant still because like that's exactly what's been happening with climate change science exactly for the last like 25, 30 years. Yeah, it could be right. It could be wrong. We don't know. You know, this blah, blah, blah. Like everybody, nobody wants to go on record as having a statement on it. Yeah. Like thinking about all the decades that we know now of sort of like, you know, these like huge omnibus, you know, federally funded studies that go through a, a bazillion drafts, right? And the earliest drafts are, are like that we know that are like scientists being like, this shit is real and it's going to kill us all. You know, like this is a real thing that's happening. Um, and, and like various presidential administrations having basically come back and been like, could you tone that down? 
Like, say that, but don't say it. Like, right. don't, don't not say it, but don't say it the way you said it. Like, because if you say it the way you said it, that that means that we have to, like, do a bunch of stuff that's going to, like, piss off. Right. Our, we have to you know, do like, something. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That we aren't willing to do for reasons that have to do with lobbyists and also to do with sort of, like, you know, shifting money away from, like, the military into infrastructure and blah, 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 blah. So, like, so, like, don't not say it, but, like, just say it in a way that, like, doesn't say it quite out loud. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, this is a, this is, like, a thing. Yeah. Like, by the time it filters down to the common man is Jay Leno making jokes about spotted owls. Right, exactly. Like, it's like all yeah. all the teeth have gone out of it yes. because it's been like watered down and watered down and watered down and watered down. But then they can say, well, you know, we presented the science. We just didn't take a political stance on the science. Exactly. But like, everyone can, can tell themselves that they were being neutral. Right. But the problem is that that – in, in those cases, like, these are all, like, I think, like, you know, heliocentrism and climate change and, you know, like, in a very different way. And then also dust. So, the, like, the reason these are all huge is, like, these are truths about the universe, scientific truths, that if you accept them, ha- will force you to readjust everything you understand and believe about reality. Like, everything that you've sort of built – your your sort of like political and social and cultural reality on has to change in response to that truth. And that's what makes that truth so dangerous and so powerful. And it's interesting, you know, that like, I, I think like the case of dust is like, in, in a lot of ways, is like way more similar to heliocentrism than to climate change, because it's not like, you know, this is not sort of like, at least at this point in the story, you know, it's 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 more sort of a fundamental like we've built everything we've built our sort of society and cultural and culture and politics on is based around this belief about like the nature of human beings is X, you know, and the nature of God or whatever is X. Um, and now you're saying it's Y, you know, so like that has all like all these huge huge like sort of repercussions for the arguments that we make about like the basis by which we you know like the basis on which we like derive our authority as the magisterium right you know? it's like it's <laughs> it's all where power it's about where power yeah, is located exactly. like like yeah. the, the you know like the thing like the thing that dust like there's sort of there's kind of two pieces to what dust to what or to what Azrael reveals about dust and and one of them seems to be you know a a truth that the magisterium knows and has been keeping quiet which is sort of this idea that it that dust only exists around adults and not children which sort of gives us a little teaser of like the way like like all these little hints of the ways that like that why children are important, why the story centers around children, why the protagonist is a child. You know, you're like, oh, is this connected to why kids are missing? Like it's sort of, so it sort of feeds a little bit into creating some mystery around the gobblers and, you know, and Roger and Billy and things like that. But then the second piece of it, you know, the, the glimpsing of another world, that's the piece of it that's a direct threat to the magisterium's power. You know, like that's the Galileo piece of it. That's the like, that's the part where it's like, if word gets out, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, you can't, you can't reveal that piece of information without fundamentally shifting where power is located 
in this world. And, you know, like when he says like potentially, you know, bazillions of worlds, the Magisterium only controls one of them. So automatically that is a monstrous diminishing <laughs> of their sort of like the, because like the way they sort of branded them. So the, the reason it's important that the Magisterium is a religion and not like, a corporation, for example, like in, like, like in the Thursday next books where this sort of omniscient institution is this sort of hilarious megacorp that like turns out to be like this sort of corporation, like, like behind everything is this one giant company that sort of like runs every other company and everything else in the whole entire world. Um, and, but I think the reason that it's important that the magisterium is a religion is because the power that they have over people, like, is sort of implicitly your life in this world and your life in the next world. Like, everything about who, like, everything that exists is sort of under our umbrella, both the material plane and the things that you cannot see. And so the idea that, that, would not be true necessarily if you go, if you sort of cross over and go to one of these other worlds that either have their own magisterium or have no magisterium at all. It in completely decentralizes them from the universe, you know, in a very sort of like heliocentric kind of way. And so I, yeah. so I think that, so, you know, kind of coming back to like Azrael versus Galileo, I think there's, you know, this sort of idea that throughout time, you know, that churches, especially the, you know, the, the Catholic Church as the closest that we have to, I think, a single religious institution that also functions as a political entity. Like, like, like in America, like Protestantism in America does too in a, in a way that's more diffuse. You know, like there isn't one central Protestant leader. There's just like evangelical thinking that sort of seeps into our politics, but like, but Catholicism has a a country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yes. They have a Catholicism country. is yeah, literally and a, a guy member of in the charge. United Nations. Yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. a guy in charge who is infallible. <laughs> yeah. Like one person in a building in a physical place yeah. that operates like a nation state and yeah. you know, and has like <laughs> UN membership and stuff and diplomats, you know. So, right. so I think looking at it sort of from that lens, you know, I I and I, you know, and again then like, you know, like Aaron mentioned, this this is a this is a a specific area of study for me over the course of my career is sort of very complicated relationship between Catholicism and science and the eras in history in which the Catholic Church has really prided itself on being, you know, enlightened and how many of our sort of great scientific thinkers were Catholic, you know, like the inventor of the scientific method and, you know, like in Gregor Mendel and all these other people. And and yet still, you know, that when when it bumps up against political realities, you know, like, like there are, you know, there are right wing cardinals now who feel like the, this, the Amazon Synod that just happened like two weeks ago. Uh, for those of you who are not Catholic, uh, a synod is basically like a sort of like a convocation of like cardinals and bishops held by the Pope and Pope Francis had one in South America. I forget where exactly. I think earlier this month and, and it was sort of a like global gathering of the Catholic hierarchy to discuss like a bunch of different issues of which one of the biggest ones was climate change, protecting the Amazon, protecting natural ecosystems. What is, what is the role of the Catholic Church? in in preserving the planet and and both sort of individually and collectively things like that and and both sort of a big picture in terms of like the Vatican working to become carbon neutral by 2030 or something but also like what do we teach theologically about the relationship between humanity and 
you know, and the earth. And, and there are, you know, there are all of these, you know, right wing conservative cardinals who think talking about climate change is a waste of time for all of the reasons that other right wing people think it's a waste of time because, you know, blah, 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 the science and both sides and, you know, which is all sort of code for like, we don't really want to change our, our behaviors or our systems, you know, um, so like it is, it is still, you know, in, in Catholicism specifically, a conversation that is sort of continually happening. Um, but I do think that like the, you know, the sort of the role, the role of Azrael, you know, as the sort of like the kind of, you know, the Galileo figure and, and what that does to, you know, I think that the really interesting tension there, I think that, that really struck me, particularly the second time I watched it where you sort of like, paying a lot more attention to kind of the like, you know, like what's happening in the background, like the relationship between Azriel and the, and the master is really complicated because of that, you know, like, like the master, like his desire to be a, a true and honest scholar is, you know, is why they give him, like they give him the money, you know, like they, they, they do in the end, give him the money to go back and study this some more. Like they do decide to take a stand, but they also are trying to do that. Like he's, he's trying to sort of both sides it a little bit too. And we find out later that it's, that part of that is again, to do with the choices that he's had to make to protect Lyra. And he's now sort of at a crossroads where he's like, I can either keep my head in the sand and like, don't make a fuss and don't draw attention to us and try to, string it out a little bit longer to keep Lyra safe here or I can you know do my job as a person who's supposed to be a repository of scientific truth and allow this research to continue which forces a change in the Lyra part of the plan and that's what he ends up eventually doing but so they give him the money like they they take a stance, but they're trying to do it in a way that allows them to preserve at least some kind of this extremely conditional, quote unquote, freedom that the magisterium has given them. And I think that that, you know, and that was like, that was something, you know, for like for Galileo, too. You know, I think that the like he was he was part of this sort of cohort of you know, of other scientists who like all kind of had ties to the Vatican. Like the Pope was a friend of his, like he was very much like he kind of ran in the upper echelon circle. Um, and you know, when he got like, you know, put under house arrest and essentially like blacklisted and excommunicated, it's like it kind of put everyone in a position that they really resented because it's like now all of you have to go on record. You know, everyone has to like, like show of hands and we're all going to see how you vote. You know, are you in favor of this or are you against it? And that. Being put in a decision, put into a place where your decision is like on the record is something that like, like everyone, everyone is trying to avoid that as long as possible. And so I think it, it is fitting that like the real kind of kickoff to this story in a lot of ways comes from like Azriel and the master and through them Lyra and Mrs. Colton and all of the other characters, like the transition moment is like the status quo can no longer kind of quietly roll along with no controversy at like we, we are, we've sort of crossed the event horizon, right? Like we are, we are past a point 
from which like we can't actually continue to keep our heads in the sand now like we sort of know too much you know and um and it's sort of and for Asriel you know part of it obviously is also that like like a man died you know like that that somebody was killed to protect this information and keep him silent and then it was all sort of framed as this sort of very convenient arctic accident um which people would have bought if he hadn't, you know, if the guy hadn't been beheaded, <laughs> you know, if they had just sort of disappeared in the snow, then it's kind of like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Polar bears, snow, et cetera. Yeah. You know, yeah. but like if someone's head has been chopped off, you're like, you know, like that's when he's like, okay, this is like, this is out like the magisterium killing Grimmen to keep him from coming home to Berlin and being like, here's what I know, you know, so, um, so I think that there's, so that gives Azrael a sense of urgency and, and also, but I think that, you know, that also explains and contextualizes, and maybe this is a good way to sort of circle us back to the one thing we haven't talked about yet, which is the alethiometer. But like, you know, but the, but the master poisoning Azrael is like, even, even though like we know he's not a bad guy, like he's not, he's not a murderer. They're all a little bit relieved that it didn't come off, but. That is still him trying to essentially keep from being, you know, dragged into the dirt with Galileo. Like that's like he's trying to trying to be like, I'm neutral, you know, like like I didn't like la la la, I can't hear you. Azriel came here to tell me stuff, but he didn't get a chance to say it, so I don't know it. So I don't have any of this bad info, so you can't get mad at me. And I, you know, like that's like like it's a it's a sort of desperate last ditch effort at trying to maintain political and scientific and religious neutrality that ultimately fails. So now it's like, okay, now you have to know it. What are you going to do? One of the things that makes the magisterium evil is that it does kind of incentivize ignorance, you know, like it sort of creates this atmosphere in which people will work to keep themselves ignorant because that's safe. And that includes people who are scholars, people like, you know, the master who pursue knowledge. They will deliberately cut themselves off if they can from, from certain kinds of knowledge, from knowing, like they will try not to know things because those things are dangerous. And so like that's one of the pernicious things, you know, like that's one of those ways where like the master is a, is a you know, I think it'll seem like obviously in a lot of ways a really good person, but like his his proximity to power and his dependence on the magisterium has essentially pushed him, put him in a position where he was willing to commit murder. And that really probably tells you more about the magisterium and the sort of like the ways that it functions as this like evil system or evil um, organization more than about the the master. You know, the master is just sort of like, this is what happens to people in that kind of system. Like people who otherwise would not be murderers will be put in a position where murder seems like, where like murder seems like the best solution because knowing whatever, you know, because because having your ignorance stripped away from you is worse than being a murderer. You know, like that's the world we're in. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and yeah. that's, which I love as as a, as a villain introduction. It's like, it's, it's magnificent because like, because we see, we, like, we only see the magisterium in this sort of very, you know, kind of like quiet, there's two men in a hallway talking scene, which reveals both that, that they have spies in the room. So they already know, like, like they already know everything 
that we now know. We don't know who their spy is. So it's sort of in terms of like, you know, revealing that they of course have, you know, they have tentacles everywhere. And also that like they're, you know, it's all just sort of, you know, it's very like quiet and, and serene and, you know, just like just people having a conversation and it's all very calm. And the way they talk about people, other people talk about the magisterium, you know, in this sort of like, hushed fearful kind of like it's just very um in terms of introducing them as sort of like this is the this is who the big bad is like it's very it's so chilling because like you said like it is like they're introduced to us as like you know we're watching people do things we know that they don't want to do or that they don't think are a good idea or, you know, or that, that seem like, well, why would you make that choice? And it's because the other choice is coming face to face with the magisterium, which nobody wants to do. Yeah. Know? And I and- think it's like really deft the way that like, you know, the, we know that the magisterium has killed someone, but we don't, we don't get, it's not, we don't see his death. We don't even see his body. We don't even see his head, you know, like, so, which tells us a lot about the magisterium, which is that, you know, they don't rule through force. This isn't a situation where, like, they're sending in, like, shock troops, you know. Exactly. To, like, yeah, there's no stormtroopers here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, they rule through fear and through this, like, the sort of, like, and they rule through the sort of pervasiveness of their knowledge and their power. And so, and, and that, you know, that tells you a lot about that, that organization and, like, the sort of nature of that power and the sort of way that they operate, you know. So, um, and the way they sort of like, I think it also sort of speaks to like, they're, they're sort of like the thing that drives the magisterium is this like, maintain the status quo at any cost, like at any cost whatsoever. Like any, any crime is preferable to upsetting the status quo, which is essentially, again, what the master does. He's like, rather than upset the status quo, I will murder a guy, you know, <laughs> like murder preferable to having my, you know, my like my status quo upset. So like that tells you a tremendous amount about, you know, about the sort of like world they exist in. And of course, like the the sort of like the, the, the thing that uh, immediately makes Asriel and Lyra stand out and also kind of like aligns them thematically together is that these are the two characters who are just kind of like brazenly like, you know what, fuck the status quo. Like I will do like, I will do anything. Like, I am chaos Muppet, Muppet extreme. Like, I will do anything. Exactly. Yep. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't, like, all I want is to get out of the status quo. And obviously in very different ways. You know, for Azrael, it's this kind of, like, pursuit, this, this, this intellectual sort of pursuit or quest or, like, like, looking for dust. Like, he wants to rock that boat. And for Lyra, I think it's, like, as makes sense for a child, it's, like, a little bit more in Koei. You know, like, she's, she's bored and she feels trapped and she wants to escape the status quo to kind of, like, to have adventures. But she has this kind of instinctive sense that she's really stuck and she's trapped in a world that refuses to change. Not just, like, doesn't change passively, but, like, actively refuses to change. And so that in order for her to be able to know more about the world or, or you know, have any kind of adventure, like, she has to get out of there. Like, she instinctively knows, you know, like – Things don't happen here. Like they deliberately, purposefully don't happen here. You know, they ha- they're happening in these other places. The ale- alethiometer. We don't really see that much with the alethiometer yet. Like she gets it, but she doesn't really like. We don't really see it in action. Yeah, I guess we'll have. Yeah, well, I guess we'll have one more to sort of more to talk about on that. On yeah, that next. Yeah, the next couple episodes, I imagine. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, and also, like, tons more time to to talk about dust as we learn more about it. Um, 
I so I uh, if if you were if you are a fan of Metastation from other from our other coverage, um, you will already know that I will bring up Milton at a drop of a hat. Uh, Ernest <laughs> lost, like regardless of how re- how relevant it actually is to the situation. But in the case of his Dark Materials, it actually is relevant um, because the title <laughs> the title comes from Paradise Lost. And we can kind of like get into this more, I think, in like in like subsequent uh, episodes. You know, as like we sort of like dig more into the the kind of like details of dust and and that portion, those portions of the world building. Um, but I did for this first episode. Uh, I wanted to, you know, um, just mention, you know, that so the 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 term the phrase his dark materials comes from Paradise Lost, and actually the first book golden compass it has an epigraph from the passage of paradise lost where um that phrase comes from and i think it actually is like really really it's like super relevant to all of this to on a whole bunch of levels so i kind of just wanted to like read it you know to talk about a little bit now but then also maybe to dig into later so this is from it comes from the second book of paradise lost and if you haven't read paradise lost so um as befits an epic it begins in the middle of the story. So book one, it begins with um, Satan floating on the lake of fire. He just lost the battle in heaven and they just got kicked out. And so he's like floating on the lake of fire with bales above and being like, man, this sucks. Like, what the fuck just happened? What are we going to do? And uh, book two. So book one, like Satan's sort of like coming to terms with what happened. They all, all the devils get up and they go on to land. Book two, they build pandemonium, which is this like palace. And it means, Place of all demons, um, which is actually like that's the word pandemonium comes from Paradise Lost. It was coined by um, Milton. So, so book two uh, is the debate in hell. So basically, like they build pandemonium. They're all like, you know, like Satan's got all the devils kind of like organized again, and then they have this parliament of of devils, um, where basically Satan's like, all right, so we lost the war in heaven, and God kicked us out of heaven into this horrible place where everything is on fire all the time, or like made out of fire. Um, so what do we do about this? Like, are we just like what like what what the hell do we do now? And so like there's a whole bunch of like all the devils kind of like a bunch of different devils have, you know, like suggested for things. So one of them is like, well, there's nothing we can do. We might as well just kind of like lie back and deal with it. And another devil is like, I say, you know, like we should just like, you know, go back and fight him again. And Satan says, in his satanic way, where like he actually like, this is all a fake, it's all a fake debate. Uh, like Satan's plan all along was that they, he already had a plan and they were going to go with it. So Satan's like, well, right before the, the war in heaven, I heard a rumor going around heaven that God had built, God had made a new place and he had made these new creatures to live on this new place. And the place is called earth and the creatures are called man. And so what I propose is that we should like whatever form of revenge we're going to get against God, because we could totally we should totally get a revenge against God. We should go to that new place and like fuck with his new creations. And that's going to be how we get revenge. And then he kind of like he manipulates it basically. So it's like, but it's going to be really dangerous, you know, like leaving hell, like escaping hell and flying to this place. Like you might get fucked up. So like, I guess, I guess I'll volunteer to go like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, which is all just kind of like Satan setting up for him to be able to get to leave hell. (laughs) 
Uh, so how about that? Midway through book two, they kind of come to that decision. And then the rest of book two is sort of like Satan flying up to the gates of hell, um, which is where he meets um, sin and death. And there's this like allegory of sin and death. Sin was born in Satan's, was conceived in Satan's mind at the moment when he decided to rebel against God. Uh, the moment when he thought to himself, um, I should be equal to God. I should, I am equal to God. I should, I should have as much power as he does. Um, and she's born from his skull, like, like, uh, Athena from the head of Zeus. Um, anyway, so then, um, when he leaves hell, before he kind of gets to earth, he has to fly through chaos. And in Miltonian cosmology, chaos is matter without God's sort of like order imposed on it. So there's, there's, so chaos is like, and, and, and the other thing about Milton's sort of cosmology, Milton believed that all matter, everything that exists is made out of the same stuff. And also all matter that exists is alive, like everything, no matter what it is, like it's all living stuff. And so basically like chaos is that living stuff in its, in its sort of like protean form before, without having like sort of God's like will, God's order imposed upon it to form it into something else. So the, the title of, the title of His Dark Materials comes from the moment when Satan is standing outside the gates of hell. He's standing at the edge of chaos and he's looking into chaos, this sort of like, this like material without order, the pure being and sort of, and, and contemplating it. And so this is the, this is the, um, the epigraph from Paradise Lost. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature and perhaps her grave, of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly, and which thus must ever fight, unless the Almighty Maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss, the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while pondering his voyage yes there's a lot there to dig into yes so i feel like so there's there's chaos there's sort of this like pure pure vital being you know the sort of sense that everything everything material that we touch is material stuff but it's living stuff which i feel like is sort of like has has a kind of connection to the idea of dust um and then also the idea that it's sort of like stuff that can be made into new worlds. So there's like a sort of like new worlds thing, the multiple worlds thing, like, you know, all this stuff can be organized in kind of like infinite ways into different worlds. And then of course there's Satan, which, um, you know, in, in Paradise Lost, and this is one of of those things famously about Paradise Lost that William Blake said that uh, Milton was of the devil's party, but didn't know it. Basically like saying like, Satan is, is psychologically the most, real and in many ways and honestly like kind of incontrovertibly the most interesting character in paradise lost um but also like his arguments for the sort of like the reasons that satan gives for his fall are very persuasive 
and and sort of reflect in a lot of in like some weird ways, like very closely uh, echo Milton's own political beliefs. But basically, like Satan, Satan's sort of whole thing is like the whole like God heaven thing. We have this one guy, God, who says that he is absolutely in charge and that any rebellion against what he says is right and wrong and what should be and shouldn't be is a sin. And so, and he punished me for like standing up and saying like, hey, why, why don't I have as much power? Why, why do I not have as much sort of like autonomy as he does? He punished me by sending me to hell because he has more power than me. But on what basis does this guy get to say that he has all the power and that's right? And the and then all of, you know, the fall in Paradise Lost, um, the fall of Adam and Eve, which I think, you know, there's that the sort of throwaway moment when Lyra is in class with the librarian where, you know, she's sort of, he's talking about like, like, you know, your when your demon takes takes its final form, then we become as gods. You know, this is kind of like that little piece of it. And then this, she sort of mentions like something about Adam and Eve. And there's all this, all this kind of like discourse around sort of like dust is attracted to adults, not to children. So there's this kind of sense of like innocence, you know, children, innocence, innocence and ignorance being kind of together. Like you're innocent if you're ignorant. Yeah. Like she mentions like the selfish motivations in the Garden of Eden was something like it was like that that their that their Bible presents it as like, you know, Adam and Eve did something like extremely selfish and terrible. Like that's exactly. like that's embedded in their yes. theology. And I was like, oh, okay. the- remember that. Yes. Yeah. And then also, I mean, like even thinking about the way this ways of the magisterium works where it's like you are innocent both in terms of innocent of sin, but also maybe innocent in sort of like a more political way, if you are ignorant, right? Where like innocence and ignorance. And then of course, also like the the original sin is eating from the tree of knowledge that like gaining a certain kind of knowledge is equal to sin. Um, and and like, so the, the fall in Paradise Lost is all about basically like the whole thing is just sort of like, is premised on the idea of like, uh, you know, that like God wanted to give um, his creation's free will. But in order to have free will, you have to have some way to exercise it. And so the only way that that works is if you're given the opportunity to choose freely whether to obey or disobey. Um, and that's why Paradise Lost opens with, you know, of, you know, the, the, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and disobedience, blah, blah, blah. So like the whole thing is about obedience, disobedience. Um, you know, so the, 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 the original sin in Milton is the act of, is the act of disobedience. Um, uh, and so, so I think it's sort of like this combination of like basically like a game God set up. Like he's like this sort of like the version of it is where it's like God sets you up to either succeed or fail. Um, and, uh, and, and from sort of like God's point of view and sort of, and really Milton's, what Milton meant, his point of view is sort of like, well, he gave you the opportunity. This was a generous thing. You know, he gave you free will. And then knowing that you would fail, he, he then had a son whose job it was to like, go make that up. Right. Like it's the, it's the fortunate fall because it made it pot because so, you know, like he sets you up to disobey so that eventually he could give you forgiveness, right? So like this is all supposed to be good. But Satan's whole point in Paradise Lost, like Satan keeps saying over and over, like, well, what the fuck? Like he set you up to fail. Like he knew, you know, like this God is playing a rigged game <laughs> and saying that he's fair. And he's like incentivizing, he's saying like, you know, your, ignis- your ignorance is your innocence. 
and doing whatever he says because he says it makes you good, you know, but like, but basically what you're saying is that like wanting to know for yourself, wanting to have this autonomy is bad. So I think that there's like a bunch of there's a sort of like a bunch of overlap there I think as well. I I'm as you're talking I just keep thinking about how like all of the all of the sort of theological and sort of philosophical similarities between this and when we talked about good omens. You yeah, know, like the I know. sort of yeah, yeah. the like 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 Crowley and Aziraphale's sort of you know innate empathy for the human individual who wants to know and the kind of unfairness built into the system of like, well, why would you like, why would you put that tree there if they weren't supposed to, you know, like the, all right, the yeah. sort of, <laughs> like, why would you <laughs> like, it's just like to test them, you know? And, um, and like, and, and at what point does the test stop being, you know, healthy or interesting or give you good information and just be like a cruel torture to human beings, you know? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it, it does definitely feel like there's some kind of ideological similarities, I guess, in the sort of, in the, in the Pratchett name, Gaiman sort of philosophy of, um, of, of what is, unhealthy or toxic in sort of Christian belief in teacher, how to sort of like manifest that in a negative way versus here, it feels like the sort of the same, the same things are kind of being presented as like the characters with whom we are in sympathy have kind of a set of beliefs that really set them apart from this big sort of totalitarian infrastructure where the second you step a foot out of line, you know, you get your head chopped off. Which I think is a really um, an interesting way to sort of make it like like both sort of an like it's such an underdog story, you know, like Lyra is such a like you know sort of one kid against this massive system, but the thing that she sort of has going for her is that sort of resistance to like like I think because she's a kid and also because of her personality, like she's not going to just believe what she's told because an adult says so you know like that and that's sort of that's why i think she's kind of the like she's the one person who can kind of break through this like just because somebody says this to you loudly with authority in their voice doesn't make it true (laughs) yeah right doesn't mean that you have to just swallow it you know Yeah, yeah yeah and and the sort of the the voice that will insist that authority is justified by its own authority by, or by its own force, right? Exactly. Is, yeah, is this yeah. is the one to to be suspicious of? You know, that is a kind of like a, a right. It's true because yeah, like because I said so. Yeah, yeah. Like exactly. it's the sort of like it's just the, it's well, like because I, I said so. I with said a fist, this. You know, this sort mm-hmm. of like because I right, said exactly. So with like, yeah, yeah. With mm-hmm. like with like the implicit like, and if you keep pushing me, I will hurt you. You know, <laughs> right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. um yeah, so I think I think that's just obviously like there's going to be a lot more of that stuff to unpack as the episodes go on and we sort of dig deeper into that um all of that sort of uh uh world and and cosmology and the kind of like the nature of dust, etc. All right, I think that wraps it up for this first episode. We're it's we're so efficient when we <laughs> I can't believe it. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are notorious for like have going for like three or four hours at a time. So like the fact yeah. that we did this in <laughs> two and a half or whatever it's going to be when it's edited um, is like 
amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't even know who we are anymore. Like so much restraint. <laughs> this is incredible. I know. We've learned so much. Yeah. Learning and growing. All right. Well, we will be back next week uh, with our discussion of episode two, the title of which I do not know. <laughs> and uh, I think we will be posting every Sunday uh, pretty much going forward until at least until American Thanksgiving hits. And then there'll be a couple weeks when we're going to sort of double up. But for the most part, aiming for weekly. Yes. All right. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye.